Chapter 16, Part 1 of Two Years in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter 16, Part 1. Taking note of the civilized and settled condition of so large a part of this state, it is hard to credit that it was only in 1831 that the first attempts at farming in Oregon were made by some of the men in the Hudson's Bay Company's service, and that in 1838 the first printing press arrived. This valued relic is now preserved in a place of honor in the state capitol building at Salem, more accordant with the spirit of the times than rusty armor or moth-eaten banners. The early history is somewhat misty, but the following slight sketch is, I believe, accurate. The coast of Oregon was visited both by British and Spanish navigators in the sixteenth century. In 1778 Captain Cook sailed along the coast. In 1775 Heseta, and in 1792 Vancouver, both suspected the existence of the Columbia River from the appearance of its estuary. But in 1792, Captain Gray of Boston, and afterward, in the same year, Captain Baker, an Englishman, entered the estuary itself. It was on Captain Gray's discovery that the United States government afterward rested its claim on the whole country watered by the great river, the mouth of which he had discovered. But Lieutenant Broughton, of the British Navy, in 1792 or 1793, a very few months after Captain Gray's visit, actually ascended the Columbia for one hundred miles, and laid claim to the country in the name of King George III. In 1804, the American government expedition of Lewis and Clark crossed the Rocky Mountains, descended the Columbia, and passed the winter of 1805-06 at its mouth and the records of their discoveries first drew public attention to the country. In 1810, Captain Winship, also from New England, built the first house in Oregon. Astoria was founded in 1811 by John Jacob Astor of New York as a trading post. The British, while the war was raging in 1813, took possession of the post and named it Fort George. Then followed the Hudson Bay Company, who claimed the sovereignty of the country under the terms of their wide charter. They established their headquarters for the North Pacific Coast at Vancouver on the north bank of the Columbia, about 100 miles from its mouth. There the fort was built, the settlement formed, farming began, and the governor of the Hudson Bay Territory had his western home. In 1832 the first school was opened. Between 1834 and 1837, missionaries of various denominations arrived, bringing cattle with them, and in 1841, Commodore Wilkes visited Oregon on an exploring expedition by order of the United States government. From 1816 to 1846, the joint occupancy of Oregon by the American and British governments lasted under treaty. In 1843, the people were for the first time recognized and united in forming a provisional government, formally accepted at a general election in 1845. By the year 1846, the white population numbered about 10,000 souls, 
and in that year the Oregon Territory, including both the present state of Oregon and also Washington Territory, was ceded under the Ashburton Treaty by the British government to the United States. Congress formally recognized the Territory of Oregon in 1848, and in 1849 General Joe Lane entered office as the first territorial governor. His portrait now adorns the Capitol building, and the old general, still erect and in full preservation in spite of his years and services, has been until this spring of 1881 yet seen and respectfully greeted at many a public gathering. In 1859, Oregon was admitted into the Union as a sovereign state. The population was 52,465. In 1880, the census gave a total of 174,767 souls, showing an increase of 122,302 in 21 years and an increase of 74,767 over the state census of 1875. But, after all, the history of a state is the history of its people. Nowadays we enter Oregon within twenty days from Liverpool, having been speeded on our journey by steamships and railroads in continuous connections. Within two years the state expects to have two direct lines of eastern communication, one by the northern Pacific, and the other by a line through the southeastern corner of the state to Reno on the central Pacific, shortening the twenty to sixteen days. Within two years more, it is hoped that the Oregon Pacific will make communication at Boise City, Idaho, with independent eastern lines, and open still a more direct course out to the centers of population and enterprise. But in the early days, from 1846 to 1851, when the tide of settlement ran first this way, their experiences were widely different. Listen to the tale some of these men tell, not old men yet by any means. The vigor and power of life still burns in most of them, for the dates are but thirty years back. But what a different life these pioneers led then. Let me sketch the scene and its surroundings where these jottings round the stove are made. It is rather a dusty old room and a rusty old stove in the middle, and rather a dusty and rusty company are gathered round it. Winter time is upon us. The rain falls in a ceaseless drizzle, and the drops from the eaves patter on the fallen leaves of the plane trees round the house. The time is after the noon dinner hour. No work presses, for the fall wheat is all in, and there is a sense of warmth and comfort within, which contrasts with the dim scene without, where the rain mists obscure the hills and fill the valley with their slowly driving masses. Five or six of us sit around, mostly on two legs of the chairs, and our boots are propped up on the ridge round the stove. We don't go much on broadcloth and biled shirts, but we prefer stout flannel shirts and brown overalls with our trousers tucked inside our knee-high boots. Tobacco, in one form or the other, occupies each one. Carpets we have no use for, and it is good that the armchairs are a fur, as the arms are so handy for whittling, there being no loose pieces of soft wood by. But we are all good friends, and I, for one, do not wish for better company for an hour or two around the stove. 
So, the old man came to Benton County in 1845, did he? Yes, uh, he and his wife and two young children, and took up a claim there three or four miles from town. Was there a town then? <laughs> Not much, just three log cabins and a hut or so. They called it Marysville. It did not get the name to Corvallis till years after. How about the Indians? Well, there were plenty in the valley, Clickitats and Calipuyas. These last were a mean set at that. The valley was all over bunchgrass, waist high, and the, and the hills were full of elk and deer. Had the old man any stock? He just brought a few with him from Missouri over the plains. Fine story he had set by them. You see, the Indians used to come and beg for flour and sugar and a beef now and then. Some of the neighbors would give them a beef at times, but, but the old man used to say he hadn't brought no cattle to give to them varmints. How did they manage to live at first? Well, the old man used to go off for a week at a time to Oregon City to work on the boats there at his trade of a ship carpenter. He had to foot it there and back, and pack flour and bacon on his back for his folks, and a tramp of sixty miles at that. Did the Indians bother any while he was gone? <laughs> uh, one time a pack of them came round the cabin and got saucy, finding only the old lady at home. They crowded into the house and began to help themselves, but the old lady, she took the axe and soon made him clear out. When the old man came back, she told him about it. Well, says he, I reckon I shall have to stop at home a day or two and fix them varmints. So three or four days afterward, back they came. The old man, he kept out of sight, and the buck they called the chief came in and began to lay hold of anything he fancied. Then the old man showed himself in the doorway with his old rifle on his arm. He looked the chief up and down, and then he says to his wife, Do you see that bunch of twigs over the fireplace? You take them down and go through that fellow while the twigs hold together. And then he says to the Indian, You raise a finger against that woman, I'll blow the top of your head off. So the old lady takes down the willow twigs, goes for the Indian for all that was in it, and beats him round and round the house till there wasn't a whole twig in a bunch. Lord, you said, have seen a whole crowd of twenty or thirty Indians splitting with laughter to see the white squaw go for the chief. I tell you, sir, that Indian made the quickest time on record back to the camp as soon as she let him go, and that crowd never bothered that cabin any more. Now, wasn't that much better than shooting and fighting and kicking up the worst kind of a mess? Well, I guess so. Did he have any more bother with the Indians? Not a great deal. You see, they were a mean lot and would lay hands on anything they could steal, but there wasn't a great deal of fight in them. One time they had been robbing one of the neighbors of some cattle, and they went and told the old man. He went up all alone to the Indian camp with his rifle and picked out the man he wanted out of the crowd of fifty of them, and he took him and tied him to a white oak tree and laid on to him with a sapling till he thought he'd had enough. Not one of the whole crowd dared raise a hand against him. Now the old gentleman's got three thousand acres of land and all he wants. How is that for an early settler? Why, <laughs> pretty good. But you came over the plains yourself, didn't you? Yes, I was but a little shaver then, in forty-five. We came by way of the Dowls. What sort of a crowd had you? Well, it was my father, name his name was, 
my four brothers, all older than I was, and, and there with the Watsons and the Chambers and their families in the company. We crossed the plains all right, and we got to the Dalles. There were 13 wagons in the party, and we rafted them and the cattle and all the rest of it down to Columbia. How on earth did you make a raft big enough? Well, we just cut the logs in the woods on the edge of the river and rolled them in and pegged them together with lighter trees laid across and took us about all morning to get out in the current and all the afternoon to get back again. But after all, we got to the Cascades. How did you get past them? Uh, we had to just put the wagons together and cut a road for ourselves six miles round the portage till we could take to the river again. Then we got boats and came all right down to Columbia and up to Willamette past where Portland now stands. Where was Portland then? <laughs> there was no Portland, I tell you. Just a few houses and cabins. I forget what they called the place. Anyhow, we got uh, pretty soon to the Tualatin Plain and where Forest Grove Station is now, and there we passed that uh, first winter in Oregon. Was it rough on you? Well, no, not particularly. Uh, all the lots of us crowded into one little cabin, but we lived pretty well. What did you live on? Well, uh, it was a little grist mill nearby, and the folks had raised a little wheat and some potatoes and peas. We got no meat at all that winter. The next spring we came on into King's Valley and took up the old place. You know where I showed it to you. Under the hill. Weren't there plenty of Indians there? Indians? <laughs> I should think so. About uh, two or three hundred Klickitats were camped in that valley then. Good Indians they were, tall and straight as a dart. Who was the chief? A man they called Quarterly. When we came in and camped, that Indian came up to my father and said, What do you want here? And my father said, We've come here to settle down and farm and make homes for ourselves. Well, said the Indian, You can. If you don't meddle with us, we won't hurt you. No more they did. We never had a cross word from them. Was the country theirs? Well, no. It belonged properly to the Kalapuyas, and these Klickitats had rented it off them for some horses and cloths and things for a hunting ground. Plenty of game? Just lots of it. Elk and deer plenty, and the bunch grass waist high. The Indian ponies were rolling fat. Good ponies they were, too. End of chapter 16, part 1.